Welcome back to Bitcoin Tina on Bitcoin. This is CK Snarks, aka CK, aka Christian, and I'm sitting here with Bitcoin Tina, and I'm super excited to bring you the second installment of this special series on Bitcoin Magazine. This second installment is going to be focused on how to value and think about Bitcoin and how to think about this thing that everyone keeps talking about, store of value. Tina, how you doing? Welcome back to the show. Hey, ACK, thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure to uh, to work with you on this project, and uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. More time with Tina, the better. Why and how do we value Bitcoin? In order to ask how we value Bitcoin, I think we need to think about the nature of value. Why do people buy real estate? For most people throughout most of their lives, they'll be told, why do you buy real estate? Because they're not making any more of it. That's the classic answer for why you buy real estate. That's actually not true. If you had this marvelous beachfront property with a few acres, you might be able to put two, three, five, ten homes on that. But you could always build up. You could build a skyscraper on that beautiful beachfront property. And then you might be able to put instead of 20 people or 50 people, you might be able to put 1,500 people or 1,000 people. You can actually, by building up, increase the amount of real estate which is available. So they are actually making a little bit more of it. Why do people buy art? People buy great pieces for a lot of reasons. One main reason, however, now they buy it for conspicuous consumption. They like to show off their wealth. They buy it uh, for the appreciation of the art itself, but a very big driving force for why Sotheby's and Christie's and other great hawk auction houses sell incredibly expensive pieces for millions and hundreds of millions of dollars each is that people are looking for a place to store value. They're hoping that if they buy that art, that over the years and decades that that art will maintain and appreciate in value. And they buy great works of art because their hope is that that art is scarce. And in that scarcity, there's value because there's only one piece exactly like that. But there's some interesting problems with thinking about real estate and thinking about art that I don't know know if everybody always thinks about. Now, in this conversation we're having, Christian, I'm going to say a lot of things which may be very controversial and maybe ways of looking at things that most people haven't previously thought of. There's a fashion aspect to both real estate and to art, which people may not think about. Now, take great cities. Take New York as an example. And historically, in the last 100 years, the great pieces of real estate that you might want to be in, that you might want to own, has shifted from various parts of New York City. It hasn't always been what it is today. There was a time that you wanted to own a home, Fifth Avenue, on Park Avenue, the Upper East Side, but that's changed over the years. People now build very expensive homes in Tribeca, in other parts of New York that previously were thought of as being places that were only used for work and places that rich people didn't want to live. So real estate has a fashion aspect to it. It changes with the whims of the way people think about the world, look at the world. The same is true of art. The whims of art fashion change. I'm not an art expert, so I can't opine on the differences in art fashions, but we know that from period to period, now that might be over decades, not necessarily over weeks and months, but over longer periods of time, the desire for different types of art changes. And some art, which was much less expensive, becomes much more expensive. And some which was more considered more expensive and more valuable becomes less expensive and less valuable. But what's interesting about both of these things, both art and real estate, what's interesting is that neither of them are actually truly liquid. Now, real estate's a pretty 
easy to verify type of thing. You, you, you can look at where the real estate is and you can, you can make assumptions about what that real estate is. Art verification of the great work of art is actually much harder in order to make sure that you actually got the art that you're paying for. They need to hire appraisers and that's a very expensive process. So there are two factors. But what's another factor that's really important as well? And that's liquidity. Neither art nor real estate are particularly liquid. It takes a lot of time and it's very expensive to sell both real estate and sell art. Real estate has been used for centuries as a store of value because for centuries, humans have understood that money can be a very poor store of value. But again, with real estate, there are problems. What are the problems? There's probably nothing easier in the world to tax than real estate. It's sitting right there for everyone to see. And it's a very easy thing to tax. And governments do tax real estate. You can't take it with no. you. You can't take your real estate with you. Can't take anything with you, assuming taking it with you means when you're dead. It doesn't, real estate is not particularly portable uh, and, not, and, and not easily moved from one jurisdiction to another. It, real estate is fairly permanent. It's pretty hard to move Rockefeller Center to another part of the world. But this liquidity factor is a really big factor. So I can't think of anything, now maybe other people can, I can't think of anything except possibly for gold, which is both has the qualities of scarcity and has the qualities of liquidity. Gold is really very interesting. Gold has historically been an excellent store of value. And that's been discussed by many people. I don't want to discuss what gold store of value properties are. But it's, it, it has a stock-to-flow ratio, which stock-to-flow may be something that nobody's ever heard of or most people haven't heard of who are listening to this. What that means is that there's a certain amount of above-ground supply, and that above-ground supply is what's been mined historically. People tend not to throw their gold away because gold has been valuable. So most gold which has been produced tends to still be around, and it, it's in various forms. The supply of gold is in the neighborhood of six and change billion ounces. And the amount of gold which is mined is in the neighborhood of 100 to 120 million ounces. So the stock to flow of gold is in the neighborhood of about six, 6.6 .6 divided by 100, 120. You're talking between 55 and 60 approximate stock to flow. And stock to flow is a very interesting and important thing for assets which are liquid and scarce. People sometimes compare it to silver, and I don't want to get into the silver discussion. Silver has lost a substantial amount of its monetary value in the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years and has taken on more industrial value. Other than gold, we don't actually have many really good examples of stock to flow. They don't hold up when looking at them statistically. Uh, diamonds are really very poor in this regard. Uh, that market's a very artificial market. Again, that may be controversial for some people, and I don't want to go into the nature of that controversy because it's not really relevant here. I, we can stick with gold as a comparison. The gold market today is somewhere between eight and $10 trillion. In Bitcoin terms, Bitcoin is at least 10x better than gold, maybe more so. Gold is heavy. It's not easily transportable. Um, it's relatively expensive to assay. You need to have uh, to be able to smelt it and, 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 and guarantee that you have accurate, pure gold, by its physical nature, necessarily centralizes. So gold has a fundamental security problem. Generally, it needs to be held in vaults. And those vaults, in order to be secure, are generally some form of centralized location, which means you're trusting a third party to guarantee that you're getting the gold that you think you own. 
but it does have excellent properties. It has excellent properties of store value and liquidity. You could fairly easily sell very large amounts of gold in the marketplace, and you're not likely to move the price. Um, now, true, there are traders that sell very aggressively and sell large amounts of futures and engage in sloppy selling to attempt to move and push the price around. But the price is actually fairly durable with regard to buying and selling. I argue that Bitcoin, as I said, is at least 10x better than gold. As we've discussed earlier, Bitcoin is easily portable. It has no weight. It's virtual. I could carry a billion dollars of Bitcoin around on hardware wallets. Uh, I can easily secure it. And Don't forget a brain wallet. Brain wallet can... is not how you really want to go. But you can, can still easily... memorize 12 to 24 words and have as much money as you want with you. That's pretty I incredible. Wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate that as a good solution. Just I know saying. that's true. I, I, I wouldn't that's how portable that. it is. It's literally it memorizing is. words. It, 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 it is. I still wouldn't advocate that as a good solution. But conceivably, it's, it, that's so. Um, you don't want to memorize 24 words to store a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. That's get hit by a truck. The billion dollars is lost and gone forever. Uh, like that old song, Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, Clementine. She is gone and lost forever. Dreadful sorry, Clementine. You really don't want that happening to you at this point. <laughs> All right, let's not get stuck on this point. Just trying to say okay, it's freaking portable. It's some portable it's, shit. It's, it's portable. And it's relatively easy to secure. And the interesting thing is when it comes to verifiability, like we discussed with art and we discussed with gold, Bitcoin has virtually no cost to verify. Now, why is that? because you operate and can easily operate your own node. It's a self-validating node. So you are able to accept your Bitcoin and have your node validate that you actually received real Bitcoin. This is unique. Bitcoin has properties which are better than anything we've ever seen. The supply is fixed. We know the issuance over the next 100 years or so. There will be slightly less than 21 million Bitcoin, and there will never be more. We know that counterfeit Bitcoin can't be produced. And how do we know that? Because we can verify that we're receiving good Bitcoin. This is a really hard concept for people to get and takes a, a fair bit of thought. The value of Bitcoin is very much related to the network effect of the holders. We call them hodlers. That's uh, the term that the Bitcoin community uses. And... Some people have argued that it's the amount of transactions that are taking place that creates the value. I would argue differently. I actually argue that Bitcoin is much more like gold 2.0, digital gold. It's actually the network of hodlers that creates the value for Bitcoin. So the more people that come to understand the scarcity properties, the security properties, and the various other properties that don't really belong in this discussion, of immutability, uh, fungibility, all these other Bitcoin properties. More people come to understand what these properties are, its portability, start to understand that that's something you wanna own. And what I'm about to say is gonna be pretty controversial. We in the United States have become a very litigious society and things happen to people. If you were to have a problem with some regulatory authority, i.e. government, one of the first things that might happen to you is they might freeze all your accounts freeze your bank account, freeze your brokerage account, freeze your credit cards. Now, this is not true for most people. Very few people actually have this happen to them. But for many well-to-do people, if they're in their own businesses, if they work for big corporations, there are many well-to-do people who have a lot of money who 
could find themselves subject to this, or they may know people where this has happened to them. And I'm not arguing whether it's right or it's wrong or whatever. This is just a fact of life. And Bitcoin, if you control your own private keys, which means not keeping them on an exchange, but have control of your private keys because you've received Bitcoin through your own node and you verified it through your node and you store it on a computer, on a hardware wallet, on some secure device, you got money to pay a lawyer. You have a money which is like having cash, except it's better than that. You can store those keys that you have through various techniques, something called multi-sig, which is multi-signature. You could store those keys in various places. It's only getting easier too. Well, technology is improving substantially. In various places to give yourself a very high degree of security and um, recoverability of your Bitcoin. This is incredibly valuable. And I, I would argue that I think, in, I think this, this is going to be a very radical statement. I think Bitcoin is actually the most conservative investment in the world today. Now, that might sound shocking to you, but I think Bitcoin is worth at a minimum the value of gold. That means that Bitcoin is worth somewhere between $400,000 and $500,000 of Bitcoin. Those numbers might sound really insane to you. I think that those numbers are easily defensible. And I think we'll see that at a minimum within 10 years likely much sooner than that. But at a minimum within a decade, as people come to understand the properties of this very, very special thing. And as more and more people come to understand it, it it actually doesn't take that many people, but the asset right now is incredibly small at the current price of around uh, $7,300. What's the market cap currently? Yeah, so the market cap of Bitcoin is about $132 billion and some change. $132 $132 billion may sound like a lot of money, but in the global capital markets, it's not a lot of money. The U.S. stock market today is about $32 trillion. Global stocks are more than twice that, maybe in the neighborhood of 70 to $80 trillion. Bond markets in the neighborhood of $250 trillion. Real estate market is in the neighborhood of 200 to $300 trillion. Gold is in the neighborhood of 8 to $10 trillion. When you start to understand what Bitcoin is just relative to U.S. stocks and global stocks, you start to understand how small this asset really is. If only a few fairly wealthy people come to understand that they want to own 1%, 5%, 10% Bitcoin, Bitcoin can get fairly easily repriced dramatically higher because there's a very large number of hardcore hodlers, Trace Mayer calls them hodlers of last resort, who very much want to hold Bitcoin, understand its value proposition, understand why it's valuable, know they want to own it, know they want to own it for a really long time, believe as I do that this is likely to become money and are not really interested in selling, maybe selling a little bit at extreme prices, but only doing that in the hopes that they can buy back that amount and more in a subsequent bear market. They're willing to ride through the volatility. They're willing to ride through the volatility. Volatility in Bitcoin is very extreme. I made an argument a long time ago that Extreme bull and extreme bear markets are not a bug in Bitcoin. Extreme bull and extreme bear markets are actually a feature and necessary for adoption. Now, that's, that may sound weird and controversial. Oh, my God, it goes down 85 90%. How is that good? Well, if you understand this property, then you understand how you might want to buy it and invest in it. I suggest to people that they acquire some Bitcoin and they sell a little bit of that, depending on how much they own, a little bit of that at very extreme prices. Very extreme prices are at pretty high prices relative to here. This is what we've seen since 2010, 2011. And then look to buy that back. But be careful 
not to sell at all at those extreme prices because there's a really good chance at some point in the next decade that if you do that, you may not be able to get that position back and you'll end up owning substantially less Bitcoin than you thought you were going to own. Yeah, never sell. No, it, it depends. Look, if, if you have a substantial position, if you have 20, 30, 50% of your portfolio in Bitcoin because it's gone up a lot, it may be reasonable to sell some. It is but crazy how want. Bitcoin can go from 1% of your portfolio to 50% of your portfolio in a year. That's what happened in 2017. If you bought in January, by the next December, it went from 1% to 50%. It can. And, and, and that's pretty crazy. It went from $20,000 to $3,000. But what happens in this process is those who understand Bitcoin best, the hodlers left last resort, those who understand why they want to own it, take advantage of this volatility. You can make volatility your friend or volatility can be your enemy. You really want to make volatility your friend. And there are ways to do this called position size. Risk is not the same as volatility. I know we're taught that in finance classes. I took a lot of finance classes. And people think that volatility is equivalent to risk. I actually argue volatility is not equivalent to risk. People who understand volatility make risk their friend rather than those who don't understand volatility. You want to think about risk over a time frame. And so the way you deal with risk is you, is you adjust your position size. Better you understand Bitcoin, likely the more you're going to want to own. But if you had a 1% position in Bitcoin, ask yourself this. If you had something with Bitcoin's properties with huge asymmetric upside, how much can you get hurt owning 1% of Bitcoin? I would argue it's very hard to get very hurt owning, putting 1% of your portfolio into Bitcoin. That's like falling off a curb. Now, yeah, you can sprain your ankle falling off a curb, but 1% loss is, even if it were a total loss, is not significant, especially given the upside could easily be, if I'm right about gold, which I think I am, you're talking about an upside of 60 to 80 times in less than a decade. Valuation is really hard to understand. In, in the financial markets, when we look at valuation of companies, we take revenues, we take earnings, we calculate profits, we calculate earnings per share from the amount of shares we have outstanding. We compare these things to other things like PE ratios, book values. We compare them to other companies. We compare them to interest rates in the market. We do dividend discount models. We do cash flow discount models. That's how fundamental analysis works for looking at companies. Bitcoin's different from that. Bitcoin is a commodity. It's a monetary commodity. It's not like orange juice. It's not like oil. Bitcoin is a monetary commodity. Similar to gold, one does not consume Bitcoin. Bitcoin never disappears. It can be lost, but it doesn't disappear. The use of Bitcoin does not consume Bitcoin. The use of most commodities actually those commodities are typically consumed by their use. And this is true of almost everything except for precious metals. But it's even true for some precious metals. Silver is actually somewhat consumed depending on uh, how it's used. When we look at valuation, humans do valuation all the time. You may not realize that you're always doing valuations. Everybody who buys and sells things is engaged in the valuation process. When you buy that suit, you look at the price of the suit, you compare it to other suits, and you decide if you want to buy it, or those sneakers, or that car, or that haircut, expensive hairstylist that you might go to. We engage in valuation all the time, everything we buy and we sell, that new phone. So what do we do? The nature of buying and selling things is to go through a valuation process. We examine the qualities of that thing, we compare them to the cost, and then we decide if we want to own it. This is how we value goods and services. 
Revenues are actually an abstraction of that. So the demonstration that the consumer bought that item is then reflected in revenues. So the way we value companies is that's an abstraction away from the valuation process. The actual process of valuation takes place at the consumer level where a purchase is made or not made. The same would be true for a company buying the necessary parts that they, the necessary things that they use for the production of whatever they're making. So humans are always engaged in the process of valuation. When people try to compare valuation of Bitcoin to the valuation of companies, they usually get it wrong. I don't have a good answer to valuation right now. I haven't come up with a way of valuing Bitcoin. I don't know what it's worth to you to have something that's the scarcest thing in the world. I know I consider that incredibly valuable. I don't know for you what it's like to have something which is easily secured that's the scarcest thing in the world. You have to decide that for yourself. Value is always subjective. I don't like the same things you like. I don't like the sneakers you like. I like different sneakers. I don't like the shoes you like. I like the shoes I like. This is true for everybody. This is true for everything we buy and we sell. What I consider to be valuable may not be what you consider to be valuable. This is true of Bitcoin as well. But we look and we examine these properties and we determine what its value is to us. This is how we value Bitcoin. So you look at what your financial worth is, what your income potential is, and you make an allocation. You say, I want to buy some of this thing, which is fixed in supply and which is extraordinarily liquid, just like gold. I can fairly easily buy it, fairly easily sell it. And this is going to become more so in time. As that network of hodlers grows, more and more people will come to understand that they want to own some of this thing. And they can easily buy it, easily sell it, easily secure it, easily move it. They come to understand the qualities of Bitcoin, its natural characteristics. This is the, how the valuation process works. And this is different from how we think about financial assets. Industrial products are different. We're making assumptions on how they're going to be used, how they're going to be sold. If I buy orange juice, if I'm a supermarket and I'm selling orange juice, I estimate what I can sell. That's not how we look at things with monetary value. Monetary value is different. For monetary value, we're looking at things ideally which is scarce. Cash is actually in many ways a really excellent thing, but it has certain problems. They make too much of it. They're always making it. The, the pool of cash and what we call money and currency in, in our world today is, is constantly expanding. And so it is becoming diluted, which is why we look to other things to store that value, because we know that over the longer term, that cash is going to lose that value. It's easily transportable, but not that easily transportable. A million dollars in cash is heavy. A million dollars in Bitcoin weighs nothing, literally weighs nothing. The transactions that we do with ourselves are actually the most important transactions that we do. That may sound really weird to you, but think about it. You're 25, you're 30, you're 40. You're always doing transactions. You're buying things that you want, that you need today. But you think about your future self. What am I going to do when I'm 50? What am I going to do when I'm 60? What am I going to do when I'm 70? How will I pay for the house I live in? How will I pay to eat? How about that vacation I might want to take in two years or next year? We're always doing trades with other people but we're also always doing trades with ourselves. 
not everybody always thinks about this. Some people don't care about what they save, but, but it's important to think about that trade you're doing with your future self, because that enables, that gives us optionality on our lives. The idea of time preference is like, I honestly, I think that is one of the most special things that Safedine brought with the Bitcoin standard is stock to flow and time preference. I agree. So some of the most important trades that we do are trades we do with our future self, saving money for that special thing or saving money to live so that we can pay for our lives later on. So we're always engaging in these choices. Now, how do you want to save that money? I would argue that saving that money in something which is scarce and has the properties of Bitcoin, and Bitcoin's the scarcest thing in the world today. Saving that money in Bitcoin is probably what you want to do. Now, that's going to sound very odd. Many people argued, Bitcoin has no use case. There is no reason to have Bitcoin. Bitcoin serves no purpose and no function. And I understand that because they haven't thought about these issues. They haven't thought about money. What's true of other investments? What's true of stocks, real estate, art? Am I missing anything? Precious metals. What's true about those investments? And what ought to be true about money? Well, what's true about all of those investments is you need a specific preference for those investments. You buy stocks because you prefer to buy stocks for the reasons that you like stocks. You buy them for their earnings, for their growth, and ultimately their upside potential. You buy real estate for the same reason. Some people prefer real estate to stocks. Some people prefer stocks to real estate. Why? Because each of them have their own inherent risks and problems. Nothing comes without a risk. Nothing comes without its own inherent characteristics. I argue that money ought to be the riskless asset. We think of 10-year treasuries as the riskless asset. And in point of fact, 10-year treasuries are not a riskless asset. 10-year treasuries are very much impacted by interest rate fluctuations. 10-year treasuries are impacted by currency flows. 10-year treasuries are impacted by government policies, Fed policies. It is anything but a riskless asset. Same true with three-month treasury bills. They might be riskless on certain timeframes. A three-month treasury bill is effectively a pretty riskless asset on a short-term time frame. You can roll these things. If we go to negative interest rates, which I think is a distinct possibility, although not guaranteed, then you might think differently about the money that's getting confiscated from you by holding a three-month treasury, which has a negative interest rate. Even if it's a small amount, you might not like giving them $1,000 and getting back only 990. You might think that's a deal you don't want to do. Money ought to be the riskless asset. Money ought to be, in my opinion, money is the rightful owner of store of value. That probably sounds really weird to you because you've never thought of it that way because the money you use, you actually don't really like very much. I mean, yes, you like to have it, but you try to get rid of it. Wealthier people who've saved their money, who have money to invest in assets, they want to put their money to work because if they don't put their money to work, they know that in longer time frame, their money will be worth less. It will buy less. Your money will buy less tomorrow than it does today. Not literally tomorrow, but 10 years from now and 20 years from now. So what about a money which was fixed in supply and scarce and has the qualities of Bitcoin? If we had cash, which was like this, probably Bitcoin never would have been invented because people wouldn't even have thought about this the same way. If we had money, if we had money which was fixed in supply, which tended to go up in value over time because the production value of a commodity uh, of, of an economy went into increasing the value of that money, you would just save your money in cash or cash-like instrument. 
be more than happy to do that. That's what Bitcoin will ultimately be. Not today, not tomorrow, but in the time that Bitcoin becomes the only money that we all use. Again, that's probably a weird idea for you, and you probably think I'm a little crazy to say that. But it's going to happen, and it's going to happen fast. And even if that doesn't happen, even if Bitcoin only becomes a very, very large gold, a gold equal to 2x gold, 3x gold, 4x gold, 5x gold, 10x gold, the qualities that Bitcoin has is going to become an asset where people, as they understand these qualities, are going to want to own it, going to want to hold it going to want to use it to exchange value with their future self, even if they never use it to exchange value for a cup of coffee or a pair of sneakers. Even if you buy Bitcoin today and sell some of it in 10 years at a much higher price to spend money with using fiat currency and your Visa card and your American Express card, that trade with your future self, because it is that network of hodlers that creates the value. It's that and we're not going to get into the whole discussion of network effects, but it's that network of holiders, not the amount of transactions. It's those people who get what you get, who understand what you understand, who understand what I understand. The world will bend to Bitcoin. Speaking of kind of how Bitcoin is going to scale and how people are going to use it for high value transactions and then why it's going to appeal that way. You can already kind of see examples of this model in uh, South American and Latin American countries that have become dollarized. They use the local currency for small everyday transactions, but when they're buying a car, when they're buying a house, if they're buying, if they're paying rent in a nice neighborhood, they're going to want dollars. Bitcoin is much more permissionless, much easier to use. Uh, and personally, I think that it has much more appeal than dollars. Th- this model is already real. Bitcoin doesn't necessarily have to scale transaction to transaction. That's actually a really great point, but that leads to an idea which I like to express, which I got from Dan Held. I don't know if he got it from somebody else. So what do we learn from that idea? We can, we can learn that the US dollar is a monetary predator. It's a very aggressive term, but it is. So if you live in Argentina, you would really prefer to have US dollars. The government might make it illegal, might not make it easy for you to have, but you really would prefer to have US dollars to having that Argentinian peso because the US dollar is much better money than much better currency than uh, the Argentinian peso. Bitcoin is the apex predator of all monies. Bitcoin is better than every other money that exists. Now, people confuse money and currency. Money can transact as a medium of exchange. It doesn't have to, but it can. Bitcoin can be used for a medium of exchange. And I would argue that with the development that's going on right now, scaling layers, we will see Bitcoin used as a medium of exchange in the course of the next 15 to 30 years because people are working on ways of scaling Bitcoin. And that might be scaled through things like Lightning Network, through sidechains. It might be scaled through custody solutions where you're using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. But it doesn't have to be. You can be using it as a money merely to trade with your future self. Buying some today, buying some for the next two, three years and selling some 10 years from now so that you can go spend that money with those dollars and treat Bitcoin like the Argentinian might treat the US dollar with Argentinian pesos. That's a great example, CK. I like that very much. It's very easy to understand for people. I think people buy the S&P 500 
because they're looking for a way to buy stocks and hope to buy it without risk. But, but stocks always have business risk and real estate always has business risk. You have an inherent risk that the economy changes and you have that inherent fluctuation that will occur. I'm not saying that Bitcoin doesn't fluctuate in price. Right now, it fluctuates tremendously in price. But there will be a day in the future where it doesn't really fluctuate in price at all and just slowly appreciates in value because it has become so large in the global economy that people are constantly looking to acquire more and more of it as a way of storing their money. And with these scaling layers, that will become easier and easier to do. And additionally, the technological solutions that are available for storing it are going to improve. Finally, I expect that we're going to see people develop interesting ways of, of using it and spending it and ways of, uh, of doing things that we might find uh, really hard to understand. I think that today, Bitcoin is worth a minimum of four to $500,000 of Bitcoin. Actually, it's probably worth a minimum of a million to $2 million of Bitcoin. And I think the downside risk, can it fluctuate? Can we go from 7,000 to 2,000? Sure we can. We can go from 7,000 to 1,000. But there'll be plenty of people who will buy Bitcoin down there. There'll be plenty of people who sell it. They'll be afraid. They don't understand it, but they don't understand its nature. They don't understand what this thing is. And there'll be people who are more than happy to pick that value up and benefit by that in the future. The fundamental risk in Bitcoin is understanding, is understanding what it is and why it's valuable. But you know what? You're not that special. If you understand it, other people will understand it too. I understand it. I'm not that special. I can explain to you why you should understand it. And there are people who understand it today. That number will grow. It will grow like a snowball rolling down a hill. And it doesn't take that many people. As some wealthy people start to understand it and they want to own some of it, they will do so. I have what I call a, a what the fuck position. So here's what I think is going to happen in the next number of years. Wealthy guys, guys who are used to trading stocks, guys who are used to buying and selling things, guys who might work on Wall Street, brokers, salesmen, traders, portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, analysts, they're going to, some of them will buy under $20,000, under $20,000 Bitcoin. Many will wait till it's over $20,000. And these people will buy what I call a what the fuck position. What the fuck position is a 1% position? Because honestly, it's very hard to get very hurt with a 1% position. So if you're a stock trader, if you are comfortable buying and selling stocks, you are going to be willing to buy a 1% position. Because realistically, if your portfolio went up 10% and you lost the entire value of your Bitcoin, now you've only made 9% on the year. You get the tax right off. And really, are you all that worse for the wear that you only made 9% that year instead of 10%? And once it's lost, it's lost and life just goes on. But if the thing goes from 1% to 50% or 100%, now the thing becomes half your portfolio. And now you have a lot of money in Bitcoin. And as the price goes up, people will buy more of it. I argue that over $20,000, once it finally gets over there, uh, and does whatever testing it has to do, I think we're going to make it up to much, much higher numbers pretty quickly because more and more people will come to understand this. They've heard from so many people along the way that Bitcoin is a fraud, Bitcoin is tulips, Bitcoin is a scam, Bitcoin is whatever negative thing they said about it. 
and they'll look around and say, my God, Bitcoin is at $40,000. I thought this thing was dead. <laughs> Maybe I should own some of it. And the more and more people, as they come to understand its properties, will want to own some of it. And there'll be many people who don't understand its properties. And that's okay too. If you understand it because of the things that I've discussed with you, then you too can become a hodler of last resort and take advantage of those other people who don't really understand it. You won't put too much in all at once. You'll maybe sell a small amount at extreme prices and you'll buy back more at low prices. And I think we're gonna watch these cycles happen. I think, and this is a radical view, it's very different from most Bitcoiners. I think what we'll see is more extreme upsides and less extreme downsides going forward because it's a scarce, extremely limited asset. And as that understanding builds, people will want to buy it when it's down because they say, my God, I have to own this thing. I missed it before and I have to own it. And that's different from what most Bitcoiners think. The stock to flow of Bitcoin is 26, 27 right now. It's gonna basically double in May of 2020. It's gonna double again in, May, in, in, in sometime in 2024 and double again in sometime in 2028. And I think that the harder it becomes to acquire this, the more evident it becomes in its scarcity and people start to become literally desperate to own it. I lived and traded in the 1990s, and I argue that we have not seen stock markets like we've seen since the 1990s. I did not understand a lot of things about this in the 90s the way I understand it today. I didn't understand how truly nuts people could get. And we really haven't seen that in the stock market. It's actually been, actually been fairly tame. NASDAQ, the NDX, tech stocks, internet stocks, biotech stocks went crazy in the 90s. And I think you're going to see a craziness into Bitcoin. And it's going to be more so because unlike all those other things, they're not making more of it. You know, I, I owned gold at one time. I sold my gold. I actually don't own any gold right now. I know there are a lot of people who still, they, they like gold. I don't like gold. I won't own gold. I have very radical views on gold. I don't want to get into those right now, but I won't buy gold. Interesting thing about gold versus Bitcoin is that we've been living in a world, and you can hear some great discussions. I, I was listening to a guy named Parker Lewis, and I would highly recommend you listen to Parker Lewis and read some of his stuff to understand this. I'm going to go over this in a superficial way relative to Parker. Parker is operating at somewhere the economics PhD level of genius or higher, actually, I don't think that much of the, the economics profession, so that might be an insult to Parker, and I don't mean it as such. So Parker's actually really unbelievably smart, and, and, and I was listening to him uh, in a podcast uh, just this morning and yesterday. I, I think the financial system is irreparably broken. I think that we have come to the point in time where we have a substantial amount of negative rates around the world. I think it is conceivable that we have negative rates in the United States, negative Fed funds rates within the next five years. I expect, and this is radical, I expect that we will see universal basic income in this coming decade. For some people that might not be radical, for others it might be radical. We treat our money very poorly. We are constantly looking to dilute it through substantial increased production of it. The hope is that for people that it pu pushes the economy forward to steal from savers to make it better for other people, to steal from savers so that people can buy things cheaper. That stops working at some point. We've been in a world where since the late 70s, early 80s, interest rates have been on a permanent decline. And I think that goes 
below zero bounds. But it doesn't have to go below zero bounds. You, you could remain right here. And if we were to see an inflation kick up in the economy, then your, the value of your money is still going down if, if you have substantial increase in production of your currency and prices started inflating consumer and producer prices. And that's actually something we can get into a little bit of in a second. But for gold to work, I think you have to have catastrophe, what people think of as catastrophe, economic failure. I think what some people might say, the world coming to an end. And I don't think that's true of Bitcoin at all. Bitcoin does not need the world to come to an end. I argue that Bitcoin is neither a risk on nor a risk off. Risk on generally means that stocks go up. Risk off generally means that bonds go up in price down in interest rates. I argue that Bitcoin is actually part of an emerging economic paradigm where you're going to watch the way the economy works really change in some very radical and fundamental ways. And I think actually Bitcoin is part and parcel, even if those other things don't happen, AI, self-driving cars, and all the stuff, robotics, and all the stuff that people always talk about, even if those things don't happen, and everything else is the same except for Bitcoin, Bitcoin will still be part and parcel of a major economic paradigm shift. Bitcoin, because of its properties, of its unique characteristics, of its liquidity, of its scarcity, can go up in value and go up tremendous amounts and the world can just keep humming along. Gold, for gold to explode to much higher levels, you really need a bit of a monetary collapse. Gold is based on trust and confidence. When you don't trust the government, you wanna own gold. Bitcoin is a, what we call it, a, a, a trust minimized money. It's a trust minimized system, but the world can keep humming along. Money is the only thing that has a universal preference. Does that make sense to you? Not just Christian, but people who are listening. Everybody wants money. And not everybody wants, not everybody wants real estate, not everybody wants stocks, but everybody wants money. Because money, again, as I had said earlier, money should be the riskless asset. For everything that we choose, value is subjective. I might want to buy an expensive computer. You might want to buy a really nice set of clothes. Everybody wants to spend their money in a different way. I might want to put my money into tech stocks. You might want to put your money into a house that you buy and rent out. Money is the only thing for which there is not a specific preference. We all want money. Money ought to be the riskless asset. And because everybody wants it, everybody wants to acquire it, Bitcoin will in time become perceived as the riskless asset. Money should be considered that. I argue that Bitcoin is what money ought to be, without going into a lot of discussion on that. Every investment has its own idiosyncratic risk. It has a risk which is specific to what it is. The risk of bonds is a risk of potentially currency and interest rates. The risk to stocks is a business risk. It's a risk of overinvestment in the part of the company, raising too much debt, picking the wrong markets, picking the right markets. Every investment that one makes has a specific set of risks associated with it. Real estate, do you buy at the right location? Do you buy real estate which is desired by other people to live in? We all make decisions about the investments we make based on our preference for these things and the hope that we're choosing things that are going to be successful that are also chosen by other people, that I buy or build real estate 
in a place that people want to live. Money doesn't have that problem. Everybody wants money. And then they use that money to make those investments. Now, if you have a really good money, then you don't feel the need to part with all of that to make your investments. You'll take some of that money and you'll consume with it. You'll buy the things that you need in your life. And that's what we do in an economy. We consume and we invest, but we also save. Economists will tell you that saving and investment are basically uh, identities, that savings equals investment. I don't actually happen to believe that savings has to equal investment. I don't think that that's actually correct. And I don't think that an economy has to work that way. I think you can have consumption, you can have savings in the money, and you can have an investment. And I think that in time, we'll have, in a Bitcoin-only world, have many people making investments because Bitcoin is not going to go up the way it's going to go up now. Right now, it's an emerging money, and it's going to go up very dramatically. In time, many people are going to want to make investments, and they will make investments with their Bitcoin. It is a radical notion. All investments are going to compete with Bitcoin right now. I would argue that store of value has leached into other assets and other investments. Store of value has leached into real estate. Store of value has leached into equities. Store of value has leached into bonds because people flee their money slash currency into other things that will better, from their perspective, maintain that store of value and possibly increase that. I think that what we're seeing right now in Bitcoin as an emerging money is that store of value will come out of those other things. It will come out of it will come out of stocks, it will come out of real estate, it will come out of gold, it will come out of art. Because the store of value in a riskless asset, a fixed supply, is much better than the store of value in each of those things which have their own idiosyncratic risks. The S&P 500, many people invest in the S&P 500 because they're looking for a way to minimize what is called in Wall Street their alpha risk that only leaves them with beta risk. The alpha risk is the company-specific risk, but it doesn't eliminate other idiosyncratic risks which are associated with stocks. Those risks are interest rates, growth rate of the economy, and all sorts of other external risks that we see. Um, and the same is true for real estate and art. And so what I think is going to happen in the coming years, and this is going to be, this is going to take some time, is that the value, Trace Mayer describes Bitcoin as a black hole for value. It's going to absorb the value from the existing system. And that's what's going to make Bitcoin grow. People are going to sell some of their stocks. They're going to sell some of their real estate. They're going to sell some of their bonds to buy Bitcoin. And I believe this too. And in time, as this asset grows in value, as its qualities become recognized by people, people want to own more of it. And Bitcoin will become extremely large as an asset and be treated in many ways as money. Very radical thought here. I think that we're going to see in time, Bitcoin destroy the value of gold. And I don't think it's going to take that long. I, I think Bitcoin's going to go up to values which are very extreme. Now, you can label me a nut if you like. I, I don't actually mind. I don't actually care. I actually appreciate it. And I'll tell you why. Because I learned a long time ago, stocks climb a wall of worry and prices climb a wall of skepticism and cynicism. And I'm actually really happy that you don't agree with what I'm going to say, because you're going to be a buyer at very high prices. And I really appreciate that. And I'm very thankful to the people who are going to come in 
can buy Bitcoin at very high prices because that's what's going to take it from 7,000 to 100,000, take it from 100,000 to 500,000, take it from 500,000 to a million, take it from a million to 5 million, take it from 5 million to 50 million. The more skeptical you are, the higher price you're going to pay. Wow, what a way to finish off the episode. Tina, you always know how to end it with a bang. Uh, I think there's a lot to unpack here, so I'm really excited. I think this is going to be an episode that people listen to two, three, four times. I know I will be, in fact. Thank you so much for coming on the show. For those who didn't listen to episode one, where can they find you? Everyone, you need to follow this man. Um, uh, Bitcoin Tina on Twitter. All right, cool. What can people expect for the next episode? Uh, I see here that we're going to be talking about how to invest in Bitcoin. Quick, quick tip. It's not going to be trading. You should not be trading this asset. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening to Bitcoin Tina on Bitcoin, brought to you by Bitcoin Magazine. Come back for episode three. Thanks, Christian. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.